Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we wrap up our series on housing insecurities and the looming threat of homelessness for many Coloradans with a look at a supportive housing project in Fort Collins. Just knowing that you have a roof over your head changes your whole attitude. We'll have more on that. Plus, we hear from a marriage counselor about how a political pro-Trump conspiracy theory is affecting couples in Colorado. That and more, coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Just over two weeks ago, a shooting at a South Boulder King Supers tore a hole in the community. Ten people were killed. And in the days since, there have been vigils and funeral services for those lost. Police have wrapped up their investigation, and the alleged shooter has appeared in court. There is still a lot we don't know. The day after the shooting, we met mother and daughter Dawn and Paige McSavvy at the fence around the front of the store's parking lot. It's become a makeshift memorial, covered with flowers, posters, cards, and other expressions of love and grief. This is going to be a trauma that's not going to go away for a long time, and there's going to need to be a lot of healing and uh, I, I just think social support and structure to help this particular shopping center get back on its feet. That's Dawn. She's lived in Boulder since 1999 and shops at this King Supers. In fact, she was there less than an hour before the shooting began. Her 18-year-old daughter Paige was in the parking lot as police forces moved in to confront the shooter. The atmosphere is, it's, it's sad, but you know, I think it's, it's still filled with like a lot of love. We checked back in with the two of them to see how they and the community around them have been processing this tragedy. You'll hear from Paige first, then Don. There's people who have come from all over to pay respects and show their support for this community and the King Supers by visiting the memorial along the fence outside. I think I'm processing it well, and then you drive by the site. It's emotional, and it brings pain and grief, but, you know, you look around and you see everyone hugging each other and laying down flowers and embracing each other and just looking, and it's, it's beautiful. There's so many different colors. It's so vibrant. And I think that brings a bunch of emotions. Again, the sadness, the grief, the what-ifs, the anger, the pride in Boulder and the community, the resilience that I believe the community has. I don't know, I think it's really hard to describe the type of feeling that that King Supers gave because it's one of those places that if you've never truly experienced the type of community that it gives off, it's really difficult to understand. I mean, all of these people were important to so many others. It's, it, that's the other thing that, you know, it's just, it's community. We just, we lost some wonderful people who've made great impacts in our community and it was so unnecessary. It was super scary having a SWAT team member tell me to, you know, run. I'm going to think about it every time I'm in a parking lot and every time I'm at a grocery store. People process this differently, and I still think there's going to continue to be highs and lows. 
there are still days that I feel like I take 10 steps backwards and it is emotionally impacting me the same way that it did in the moment. I just think it's going to be fluid for everybody. I think myself and the rest of the community wants to know why are King Supers? You know, I understand there's a chance that we will never have that question answered. I think it would just provide a sense of comfort and a little bit of relief because it doesn't make a lot of sense. A lot of communities use Nextdoor, and I've noticed there's been a lot of posting on that, and people who are professionals in counseling and dealing with grief and trauma have provided resources or services. I see a new post about someone offering to go to the grocery store for for anyone that is too scared to go. You know, if someone doesn't want to go to the grocery store or is having a really hard time, there's every single day there's some neighbor that is offering up their time. I think the community can be a healing agent. We're going to hear more stories. We're obviously going to talk about it. I feel like in an event like this, the comfort of my own family is honestly the most important thing for me. I'm very thankful and blessed that I have a support system like that at the tip of my fingertips and that they have been there for me. And I, and I really hope everyone else in the community is getting that same type of support and feedback and comfort from their loved ones. I think the vigils were very, were very healing too. Healing and sad. You know, there's a sense of of motivation in the crowd. I mean, a sense of, of motivation for change and support. And I don't know, I think they're just the common theme of leaning on each other has been healing um, in itself. I think this event probably has galvanized at least the Boulder community to start looking at things from a political standpoint. And I think that that can help in the healing if we can see change. People shouldn't lose their lives for going to the grocery store. People shouldn't lose their lives for working in, you know, a nail salon or a beauty salon, you know, going to the movie theater, going to school. So, yeah, yeah, I would love to be on the, the front line of trying to make some, you know, big steps for change and starting those conversations with people. You know, these people meant something to this community and they, it needs to be memorialized in some form. And it would be nice if, you know, if we can continue to make some gun reform legislation and in recognition of victims. This should never happen again. That was Don and Paige McSavany sharing how they're doing following the March 22nd shooting in Boulder. KUNC's Adam Reyes produced that piece. A celebration of life will be held for Terry Liker on Friday morning at 11 o'clock at the CU Event Center. She was among those killed, and she worked at the King Supers. Services were also held this week for Ricky Olds, who also worked at the store. You can hear more about the community's processing in the aftermath, the brewing political battle over guns, and find other updates on our website, KUNC.org. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought many Coloradans closer to losing one of their most basic needs, housing. But housing insecurity and homelessness were growing issues well before the pandemic due to Colorado's population and the high cost of living here. In the final part of our series, On the Edge, KUNC's Matt Bloom has more on a new supportive housing project in Fort Collins that's changing what it looks like to get people housed. 
It's move-in day for Allison Perkins, and the 51-year-old is getting a lesson from a building manager on how to use the key fob for her brand new apartment. You hold it flat against the glass for about four seconds, like that, yep. It's a really big day for her. She's nervous. The door unlocks, and she steps into the narrow entryway of her new apartment, her green eyes lighting up as she takes it all in. <laughs> Hang your purse up. Oh, wow, that's really cool, too. The place is fully furnished with a bright green accent wall. The kitchen cabinets are stocked with peanut butter and pasta sauce. This is a special moment for Perkins because it's the first time in two years she's had any kind of home to call her own. She became homeless after losing her 29-year-old son suddenly in March of 2019. And um, I kind of lost my mind, so I lost my job and I lost my house. And that's how I ended up homeless. This is my she spent those years moving place to place, finding shelter where she could, sometimes sleeping outside. Until somebody has even spent one night overnight in the cold, you know, and if the weather's stormy or whatever, the being out in the elements is extremely hard on you. Then earlier this year, a caseworker she met at a local shelter told her about Mason Place, a new supportive housing project opening up in Fort Collins. And so um, with the by the grace of God, really in my um, my caseworker really fighting hard for me, um, I was able to get a housing voucher. Perkins is just one of 60 residents expected to move into Mason Place this year. The building, formerly home to a dinner theater, was purchased in 2018 and renovated by Housing Catalyst, which develops affordable housing projects in northern Colorado. The inside now looks like an upscale hotel. The lobby with its high vaulted ceilings is full of mid-century modern furniture and lots of plants. So we have tried to create spaces that are bright and have a lot of natural light and are very welcoming. Daniel Covey is the program manager. We work very hard to make sure that not just the space itself, but the way that our team and uh, partners interact with people is very respectful, communicates dignity, and makes people feel like they're in their home. There's also an on-site library, community garden, and even a dog washing station. Covey says the features are all a part of something called trauma-informed design, which is meant to counter harsh conditions residents may have experienced while living on the street. I think when people, many people come and tour um, our properties and they say things like, I had no idea that affordable housing could look like this. To live here, each person has to pay 30% of their total monthly income toward rent. Unlike temporary shelters, residents can stay at Mason Place as long as they want. Covey says slots filled up within weeks. Certainly the need exceeds the supply. There's no question about that. The state's latest homeless count shows northern Colorado's homeless population is increasing. Studies show permanent supportive housing projects like Mason Place are an important part of addressing homelessness. But they don't get built overnight. There are lots of challenges in getting supportive housing um, up and running. Allison George oversees housing at the state's Department of Local Affairs. Her office partially funded Mason Place. And funding for these projects is complicated. They're partially paid for through tax credits, which brings the overall cost down, plus some state and federal dollars. George says money to fund new housing projects is tight, and neighbors aren't always on board. And I think that comes from a place of not really understanding or knowing the impact not only on the individuals that are housed, stably housed, 
but also on the positive impact of the community that it's actually placed. George says they also help prevent some properties from falling into urban blight. And so you take an underutilized structure and you make it a beautiful home for people. Those people become a part of a community. Uh, they become a part of the fabric of that community. Back in her new apartment, Allison Perkins relaxes on the blue couch in her new living room. And then just, it smells anew. She's still processing what it all means to not worry about having a safe place to sleep. And so, I mean, just knowing that you have a roof over your head changes your whole attitude about everything, about how, what's, what's the next step? What can I do next? Or, you know, what do I need to do to better myself next? She says she wants to work with staff on a new resume and begin a job hunt. Perkins cut hair for three decades before becoming homeless. She also wants to start working with a grief counselor to properly mourn her son's death. I'm normal. I mean, I'm just another 51-year-old lady that's trying to um, get back on my feet. She'll begin the next steps of her new chapter tomorrow. First, tonight, she hopes to find a DVD player and pick a movie to watch in her new home. Matt Bloom, KUNC, Fort Collins. You can find all the stories in our series On the Edge at KUNC.org. There you can also find versions of the stories written in Spanish. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Last month, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed into law the Election Integrity Act of 2021. The new law places the tightest restrictions on voting the state has seen in years, ranging from adding new ID requirements to moving back the request deadline for absentee ballots and restricting voting on Sundays. While the bill was presented by many Republican lawmakers there as additional layers of election security, critics have drawn the comparison to Jim Crow laws of the past, which have enforced and maintained racial segregation in modern U.S. history, and have made note of the historic turnout from Georgia voters, particularly among people of color, in the November election and January Senate runoff elections. Since the passage of the Election Integrity Act, many have boycotted the state's top businesses. And earlier this week, Major League Baseball announced that its annual All-Star Game would be moved from the suburbs of Atlanta to Coors Field in Denver. In a statement, Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred said that moving the game out of Atlanta was, quote, the best way to demonstrate our values as a sport. Tom Zeiler is a professor of history at the University of Colorado Boulder who co-teaches a course called America Through Baseball. He's also the author of the books National Pastime, U.S. History Through Baseball, and Jackie Robinson and Race in America. He spoke with KUNC's Alana Schreiber about the significance of this decision. When it comes to athletes protesting injustices, baseball is not exactly top of mind. Why don't we normally see baseball players fighting against injustices like other athletes? And why is baseball taking a stand now? Baseball might not currently be the leader, uh, certainly in race relations and, and in protesting race relations. But if you go back uh, to 1947 and Jackie Robinson, baseball was the leader, maybe not a protest, but in certainly in an experiment in race. It also drew the color line, was one of the first institutions to do that in the 1880s, well before the Supreme Court ruled separate but equal. But in 1947, before people really knew the name Martin Luther King, baseball was sort of at the forefront. Baseball integrated before the U.S. military, the other sort of institution that is quintessentially American and, and is, is sort of a, a laboratory of social experimentation, too. So baseball's been there in this kind of protest or this kind of social movement, but certainly is behind now. 
I can't help but think not only is the demographic of the fans, some of that is the, the demographic of the players too. You know, a quarter of the league is foreign born. And though there are many black Latin Americans, you know, the number of black Americans, U.S. Americans, African Americans has declined. And not only does the sport mainly consist of white players, but mainly white staff, management, and owners as well. There's only one majority owner of color, and many club owners are also Republican donors. That being said, were there significant risks to this decision? Was it surprising to anyone, and were there any repercussions? I think it was surprising. I imagine you're going to see some raucous crowds on some protests against Major League Baseball. But the risk here, I think the commissioner weighed his options. I think there was pressure because baseball has internationalized a lot. And there is the diversity of a lot of Asian and Latin American players, too. I think the focus was on Atlanta and Georgia writ larger, right? Not only the Biden victory there, but the two senators. And again, uh, suspiciously coincidental that then the legislature and the, and the governor passed this, this voting restriction. I think Stacey Abrams was worried and disturbed about the loss of business to the locals. Uh, but I think overall, she believed that this was the right move. So I think the commissioner probably was looking at many of his players saying, you know, we need to do more here. How can we really allow something like that to happen? This decision to move the All-Star game didn't come from the athletes. It came from the league. What is the significance of this move that it was not an athlete speaking out, but a top-down decision? Very big. That's a very big decision and a very tough one for the commissioner. And I mean, if you go back again to Jackie Robinson, the fact that the commissioner then, uh, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, really was a racist and really didn't do anything to help that cause Commissioner in baseball has usually been the servant of the owners. Commissioners usually are. So it's a very important statement. In a way, it was courageous. And I, I, I got a feeling there's going to be fallout from it. In a sort of incredible irony, the All-Star Game was not only moved from Atlanta, but to Denver, which is home to Dominion, the election systems company that had over $100 million worth of voting systems used in Georgia during both the general and Senate runoff elections. Dominion was falsely accused of election fraud, flipping red votes to blue, and having intentional system breakdowns in Republican strongholds. But Dominion headquarters is actually just a few blocks away from Coors Field. So is this just a coincidence? I have to think that it was not a political consideration. My guess is Colorado could get things going quick enough. The pandemic is looking really good here. I think they were just looking for a, a mid-sized, more neutral market. I think they just wanted a politically safe place to do this. Sports are often seen as this great unifier. You know, Republican or Democrat, rich or poor, anyone can pick a team and root for them. But this decision might pull people apart. How do you think this moment will be remembered? Oh, I think we'll remember this one. I think uh, the combination of the times we live in, the fact that this crossed into politics, into race, I think this is going to be a big moment. I think you're going to hear more and more comments about politics should never enter sports. Well, it always has in every sport. Let's think of 9-11 and President George W. Bush showing up at Yankee Stadium to throw the first pitch of the World Series. 
you go to a Coors Field since 9-11 at the seventh inning stretch, you not only sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game, but America the Beautiful, and there's a military family or somebody marched out. Patriotism, nationalism has always been, certainly last 25 years, but has always been. Star Spangled Banner was first played in World War I at ball games. If that's not politics, what is? Tom Zeiler is an author and history professor at CU Boulder. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. QAnon is a far-right conspiracy theory, which the FBI has called a domestic terrorism threat. It's based on claims alleging the existence of a deep state political cabal run by business and political elites and Hollywood celebrities who are also pedophiles and who actively worked against former President Donald Trump while he was in office. Despite being widely discredited, the movement has become more mainstream. While QAnon can feel like one more symptom of the partisan divide in this country, it's also caused real division in some families. Relationships in which two people don't agree politically are not uncommon, but what happens in a relationship when one person believes in a wild web of implausible conspiracy theories? For more on that, we turn to Sean Whitney, who's a marriage and family therapist and founder of Restoration Family Therapy in Fort Collins. He's also an instructor and supervisor in the Marriage and Family Therapy Program at Colorado State University. Sean, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thanks for having me on. I'm just wondering how your job has changed in the last few years, um, specifically with the beginning of the Trump administration. Have you found more couples and more families at odds because of political disagreements? I think being at odds is something that's always happened. I've seen more of a polarization, unfortunately, with couples and families around political, religious, and other kind of ideological issues that people feel very strongly about. And and unfortunately, that polarization has accelerated, in my experience, over the past couple of years to the point where folks aren't able to engage in dialogue or even civil discourse in the way that maybe they used to be able to do a bit easier. You also work with couples where one partner is a believer in the QAnon conspiracies and one partner is not. Tell us about how QAnon has impacted relationships, what that impact looks like in the couples that you counsel. Although my experience with it is limited, I'll tell you for those that I'm working with where this is the case, where maybe one partner feels uh, as if QAnon has some, some merit and truth to it and the other does not, particularly with the couple that I'm working with this time, it's it's increased and uh, accelerated the conflicts uh, in their communication with each other because we all want to feel heard and understood. But in a situation where there's a mixed agenda around uh, ideologies, particularly in this case with QAnon, uh, the debates become a bit more heated and the conflicts become a bit more divisive, unfortunately. It's certainly nothing new to have a couple with differing political ideologies, but it seems like a belief in QAnon is a different beast altogether. How do you try to help couples like the one that you mentioned work through their differing beliefs? I think in their case, uh, one of the things that keeps coming back as a strength or protective factor for them is that they're prioritizing their relationship over their ideologies. And when that's the case, I, I think you can agree to disagree. But unfortunately, when that's not the case, things can unravel fairly quickly. So in my work with them, we also use what I call the ORCA model. Uh, it stands for openness, respect, curiosity, and accountability to power. And, and those four elements, if, if we can embody them in our relationships, can help us bridge some of these divisive gaps that uh, unfortunately we're seeing more of here in recent years. 
What role does media play in influencing these relationships? Unfortunately, I think where you get your news and your influences uh, from media matters these days. You can get two very different accounts of the same story depending on the outlet that you're relying on. For example, I, I was meeting with a couple the other day who were talking about very different accounts of our recent tragedy in Boulder and uh, started becoming quite heated in my office because one was talking about an account of it that was very different than the other. And it, it dawned on me that that unfortunately our source of news and information matters because if it's not the same as our intimate partner, then it increases the likelihood of profound impacts on their ability to feel safe and connected to each other. What advice do you have for couples for whom this is the case? They rely on different media sources. How can they find common ground? I think what's important is really trying to embody the sea of orca to say, okay, how can I be curious about my partner's perspective, my partner's position, my partner's opinions, and really understanding that relationships can continue even if we agree to disagree. And it can be really helpful if we can try and get in each other's shoes, meaning uh, if you and I read each other's media sources, then maybe we can seek to understand each other a little bit better that somehow, some way, if I allow myself to understand where you're coming from and you do the same, then we're likely to manage our differences a bit easier and and even feel more understood by each other in the process. But if I put up a wall and say, no, I'm not going there because that's not my source of media, then I've basically chose my source of media over our relationship or the potential that it has. Sean Whitney is a marriage and family therapist in Fort Collins and an instructor and supervisor in the marriage and family therapy program at CSU. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. That's our show for today. Be sure to check out the Colorado Edition podcast feed on Friday for a special podcast-only episode of the show where we take a deep dive into KUNC's latest reporting series, On the Edge. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.